0: Tonight on this special edition of 60 Minutes Presents, eat, drink, and be merry.
1: The restaurant ranked number one in the world is in the little known town of Modena, Italy, Osteria Francescana, where you have to wait months to get a reservation. Caesar salad in bloom. Chef Massimo Battura (laughs) says it wasn't always like this. Those are flowers? All flowers, edible flowers that his avant-garde eatery might never have become number one if not for a simple and spectacular dish of old-fashioned tagliatelle. So that turned everything around? Totally. You are known as the maestro. Yeah.
2: Now, before they want to crucify me in the main piazza.
3: <laughs> 60 Minutes is constantly on the lookout for places we've never been before. So when our late colleague, Bob Simon, heard about a magical place in the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland, known for making some of the great whiskies in the world, well, the story spoke to him.
4: <laughs>
3: Cheers. We
4: get literally thousands upon thousands of single malt tourists coming here. They come from all over the world just to set foot on island. To study it? No, to drink it.
0: Good evening, I'm Sharon Alfonsi. Welcome to 60 Minutes Presents. Tonight, in this season of celebration, we'll eat, drink, and be merry. The food is from Italy, the drink from Scotland. First, let's eat. Today, chefs can be as famous as movie stars, but few rival the success and celebrity of Massimo Bottura, his restaurant, Osteria Francescana, has three Michelin stars and ranks number one on this year's list of the world's 50 best restaurants. It's located in Northern Italy, in a city called Modena, where the great tenor Luciano Pavarotti was born. This fall, when Leslie Stahl went to Modena to meet Chef Batura, she was struck by how operatic he is.
2: Imagine, 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 dream, you have to dream about food okay
1: do you dream about food
2: i I always dream about
1: food i always dream we first met massimo battura shopping for food in modena the home of italy's finest balsamic vinegar and parmesan cheese he buys the freshest vegetables like green tomatoes that he likes to top off with 25 year old balsamic vinegar are you ready i can't wait
2: okay it's an experience that is going to stay with you for the rest of your life. I'm telling this you this. is a
1: huge moment. Yeah. It's
2: a huge moment for you.
1: Okay. The whole thing, just like yeah, that?
2: Yeah. Just one bite. Okay. And close mm-hmm. your eyes, mm-hmm. connect your mental palate, and understand. The, 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 your perception, your receptor, are talking to you right now.
1: There are so many different things going on in my mind. Yeah, it is.
2: That. It is. It is. Complexity.
1: And that's his signature yeah, as a right. chef. And what's he making?
2: He's making uh, risotto, uh-huh. toasting rice with, uh,
1: look, orange juice. Dishes that are complex mixtures of unexpected flavors. Due persone, due menu super, non marcia. Non marcia. In his kitchen at Osteria Francescana, he oversees a staff of 35 as they build his beautiful avant-garde masterpieces that he says are inspired by contemporary art. His creations are like canvases, and he christens them. He calls this camouflage made of wild hair, juniper berries, and cocoa powder. Oh, that's spectacular. Some of his dishes are beautiful, some are whimsical, And then there's his version of popular Italian cuisine. That's chicken cacciatore. This is chicken cacciatore. Oh, my God. You wouldn't recognize most of his Italian dishes. This is the crunchy part of lasagna. Spaghetti
2: with tomato. Spaghetti with parmigiano. Spaghetti with fresh herbs.
1: Battura is one of the most successful chefs in the so-called deconstruction school, where food is presented like abstract art. This what do you is call
2: this? In three parts. Uh, I don't know.
1: <laughs> his culinary creations are rooted in the traditions of northern Italy and his hometown, Modena, an ancient city of narrow streets and grand piazzas where they've been making Parmesan cheese and balsamic vinegar the same way for centuries. It's where Batura's love of food began when he was just a little boy hiding under the kitchen table.
2: I remember uh, my grandmother was uh, rolling pasta. In the meantime, <laughs> what I was doing, I was stealing the tortellini from, from under the table and eat uh, the raw tortellini.
1: That's how you were be- beginning to develop your palate. It's from raw tortellini.
2: Yeah, from a raw tortellini you can understand a lot. (laughs) You can understand the the amount of spices they use, the amount of parmigiano, the amount of ham, you know, those kind of things. Even as a little kid. Balance,
1: How old are you at that point? You're a kid.
2: Yeah, like seven, six.
1: And you're falling in love with food.
2: In that moment, exactly.
1: He started cooking for his friends when he was in high school but his father wanted him to become a lawyer in the family's lucrative fuel business. I have to show my dad he was
2: wrong because he tried to, you know, he tried to convince me uh, not to get into that business. Being a chef. Yeah.
1: He didn't no, respect that as no, a he didn't. serious he didn't. profession.
2: No, 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 he didn't. No, no
1: more money from dad. Nope. That nope, was it. No,
2: no, that was it. Cut you off. Okay. And
1: you're saying to yourself... Exactly. I have to show you.
2: I don't want to say revenge is a very
1: strong word. It's more like... Show, he, show that you were right. Show that I'm also right. But he wasn't right right away. When he and his American wife, Lara Gilmore, opened Osteria Francescana in 1995, amidst all that tradition in Modena, they were offering Batora's minimalist rendition of a bowl of tortellini, just six little pieces of pasta.
0: Six little, tiny, and that was so, it. the biggest provocation of all. You know? <laughs> a tortellini is something, it's it's, it's comfort food for, for modernese. It's like a religion. If you don't believe in God, you believe in tortellini, but you don't want six. You want a nice, big, abundant bowl of tortellini with the hot broth. And he was serving this sort of room temperature broth gel and the tortellini were there and there were six of them and the modernese (laughs) were like putting their hands like, what did I come here for? Why am I here?
1: (laughs) Food critics ask
2: themselves the same question a very important modernist food critic came and the eat, and food eat. Food the modernist food critic came and eat at the, our restaurant like the, the oh,
0: <laughs> of course the review was terrible the review was like,
2: please going. don't go there oh, no. don't go there
1: and hardly anyone did his food was seen as a sacrilege in a country that reveres mothers and their home cooking did you ever say to yourself Okay, I'm going right back to the old Italian cooking. I can do it. I know how to do it. Never. Never.
2: No, no. Now you can't do that.
1: But after six years of bad reviews and empty tables, he gave in and introduced a handful of traditional Italian dishes, including an old-fashioned tagliatelle. And then a prominent national food critic happened by, ordered the tagliatelle, and wrote
2: but these are the best tagliatelle in the world.
1: He said that? Yes. So that turned everything around? Totally. You are known as the maestro.
2: Yeah, now. Before, (laughs) they want to crucify me in the main piazza. Now they call me maestro. That's the difference.
1: Some of the maestro's dishes are improvisations born out of accidents, like his, oops, I dropped the lemon tart.
2: That's Uh, a, a classic.
1: The story begins when his pastry chef, Taka, was making a lemon tart. I saw Taka
2: completely white. He dropped one of the two tarts in the plate, upside down, just like that. Oh, God. Taka was, like, ready to kill himself. Mm -hmm. And I said, Taka! Taka, no, please don't. Don't kill yourself. Don't, don't. (laughs) Look at that. That lemon tart is so beautiful that we have to serve the second one exactly the first one. We did it. We rebuilt in a perfect way the imperfection. We smashed the other tart exactly as the, the first one. I can't believe, I can't believe we did that. If I think now, I was like, we were crazy. I, I was like, totally out of mind.
0: Fantastic.
1: Oops, I dropped the lemon tart. Is Jackson Pollock on a plate? And it's one of the most popular dishes on a tasting menu of 12 courses that, with wine, can cost more than $500 a person. They serve lunch and dinner five days a week, and it's always booked. Reservations open three months in advance and fill up in minutes. Are you prepared for, a, for a, the best salad of your life? he invited us to sample some of his other signature dishes in his well-stocked wine cellar.
2: Caesar salad in bloom.
1: Those are flowers?
2: All flowers, edible flowers.
1: All edible flowers. <coughs> but
2: <the> 27 <coughs> elements in that dish.
1: It takes two chefs to build a salad leaf by leaf, petal by petal. And for this dish, it takes a splash of seawater. This is is
2: seawater transformed into
1: paper. You make paper out of seawater? Yes. It may not look like it, but this is Botora's filet of sole, topped off with wisps of dehydrated seawater. He calls it Mediterranean combustion. How am I ever going to eat normal food again? (laughs) Ever. (laughs) But you feel how light you feel? Very light. Yeah. There's. But totally delicious. How long did it take you to create this one dish? Was it months? Was 32 it? years. Oh,
2: come 32 on. <laughs> years of experience.
1: Now 56, after all his hard work, Botura is riding high, sometimes on his customized Ducati motorcycle. But a few years ago, he began to feel something was missing in his life. That serving fancy food to international foodies wasn't enough. So like other celebrity chefs, he began to think about helping the poor by feeding them.
0: This is late 2013. We had just sort of we're one year into having our third Michelin star that we had worked 20 years to get. And I'm thinking, now you want to start doing this? I thought it was a terrible idea. But
1: she relented and helped him open a number of what he calls refectorios, kind of souped-up soup kitchens but he didn't want them to feel like down-and-out stand-in-line cafeterias so partnering with local charities he created warm inviting dining rooms in old abandoned theaters or unused space in churches where the working poor and homeless Italians and refugees from Africa sit side by side with volunteers who serve them three-course meals like in high-quality restaurants the food donated by local grocery stores, would have been thrown out because it's slightly damaged or near its sell-by date.
2: We are Italian, so we're going to make pasta.
1: He's opened seven refettorios so far in London, Paris, Rio de Janeiro, and four in Italy, with more to come. Where did that inspiration come from?
2: The numbers are math numbers. 33% of the world production are wasted every year. 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted every year. You know, think about one trillion of apples goes in the garbage. Think about how many, you know, apple pie you could create with those with trillions
1: of you know, that's insane. The man who has for decades insisted on the oldest balsamic, the finest parmesan, the freshest tomatoes, now realizes their salvation in discarded leftovers. If cooked well, they can nourish the poor, as he says, by filling their stomachs and lifting their spirits.
4: Massimo Vottura,
1: number one. And his as well.
2: It's absolutely and necessary to give back some of the lucky life you are living. So this is about giving back. It's what, is what we need. We need dreams. If you don't dream and you don't dream big, you know, you cannot change the world.
0: When our late colleague, Bob Simon, heard about a magical place in the Hebrides Islands off the coast of Scotland, known for making some of the great whiskies in the world, well, the story spoke to him. The place is called Isla, and it's one of five whiskey-producing regions in Scotland that make an expensive type of scotch called single malt. Isla's distilleries turn out relatively small amounts of their own handcrafted brands, For a worldwide luxury market that's more than doubled in size in the last decade and become the spirit equivalent of the fine wine business. Bob liked good scotch and beautiful places, so he went off to Scotland but died before he could finish the piece, leaving behind a stack of videotapes and some random notes. Back in 2015, Steve Croft decided to finish it for him and raise a glass in Bob's memory.
3: Islay is a small island 20 miles off the west coast of Scotland. There are few trees, miles of windswept heather, and some of the most fertile agricultural land in Scotland. There are sheep and cattle everywhere, and an abundance of wildlife. But that's not why people come here. This is eight small distilleries that produce some of the world's finest single malt whiskies. This is the
4: whole lifeblood of this island and everybody on it. This is all we know.
3: Jim McEwen has been working in Isla's distillery since he was 15 years old. He's now master of the works at Bruklati.
4: I just thank God that he chose the Scots and gave them whiskey because we appreciate the gift and we look after it.
3: They've been making it here since the 15th century when supposedly some monks taught the locals how to use barley, water and yeast to make a spirit the Scots now call the water of life. They've been perfecting it for 600 years. The distilleries are easy to find, but hard to pronounce. Ardbeg, Bamor, Bukladi, Bunahaban, Kalila, Kilhoman, Lagavulin, and Lefroy. As Bob Simon noted, they get harder to pronounce
4: the more you visit. For us guys in the west coast of Scotland, whiskey is a religion because it's a provider. And the great thing about whiskey is not just a drink. It's much more than that. Have you ever watched some old Hollywood movies? Yes, I have. <laughs> scotch was always portrayed in Hollywood as a whiskey when you were down or you were in trouble. The one thing that was going to get you back in your feet and out there was a the scotch.
3: Today, if you're down on your luck, you probably can't afford an Isla Single malt. The good ones started around $70 a bottle. The rare ones can go for hundreds of dollars a glass at chic whiskey bars around the world, where they're known for their distinctive smoky taste. It comes from peat, the mossy earthen fuel that's cut from bogs on the island. It was used to heat Scottish homes for centuries and is still used to toast the barley at Isla Distilleries. John Campbell is the master distiller at Lefroy, one of the top-selling single malts in America. Pete is the thing that makes Isla unique, and it really resonates with people, and it just engenders a kind of love-hate relationship. And the people that love it absolutely love it with a passion. And there seems to be no shortage of them. Isla is not easy to get to, usually requiring multiple flights, a long drive, and a two-hour ferry ride. Yet enthusiasts continue to make the pilgrimage, especially for the Whiskey Festival.
4: We got literally thousands upon thousands of single malt tourists coming here. They come from all over the world just to set foot on Isla. To study it? No, to drink it. It's lovely. It's clean. It's fresh. It's vibrant.
3: Officially, Whiskey Fest is a celebration of Isla's culture, but mostly it's about drinking. Absolutely beautiful. No off notes at all. As they listened to Jim McEwen extol the virtues of Brooklottie, the novitiates, connoisseurs, and whiskey snobs approached each glass with reverence bordering on the religious.
4: Oh, wow, the fruit in that is incredible.
3: As the glasses empty, the smiles got bigger. But the islanders will tell you that all of this warmth and good feeling comes not from the alcohol in the spirits, but from the spirit of the place. It is almost mystical, beautiful, dramatic and quiet. There's no road rage, barely any traffic. If you do get hung up, it's probably because of a farm animal. They have the right of way. And if you do happen upon people, they'll almost always greet you with the Isla wave.
2: So everybody just waves because it's just friendly. There's not so many of us, so you just wave to
0: say hi.
3: It's what Elsa Hayes liked about the island when she moved her family here from London to take a manager's position at one of Isla's thriving distilleries. It's strange is it not, it's not that such a small place with so few people, your products are known everywhere in the world. I know,
2: but it makes us all very proud, it does. There's such a boom worldwide for, for single malts. Um, it's fantastic and you can really feel that on the island. A lot of the distilleries have doubled production and um, so there's a lot of opportunities there as well.
3: And there's no reason to believe that that won't continue.
2: Well, times are good people drink, times are bad
4: people drink.
3: (laughs) Is it possible to be socially acceptable to be a teetotaler on this island?
0: Yes. Are there any? Yes. (laughs) No, I'm not one of them.
3: (laughs) Over the years, the island's people have learned how to entertain themselves, often at gatherings called caleys, which feature traditional dance and sad songs, mostly about leaving Isla and yearning to return. To sit with my love on the bridge above the rippling waterfall. To go back home, never more to roam, is my dearest wish of all. If this looks and feels a lot like Ireland, that's no coincidence. It's only 25 miles away. They come from the same tribe, share the same Celtic culture and Gaelic language, not to mention a love of good whiskey that gets them through stormy weather and the long winter nights. There are no movie theaters on Isla, no dry cleaners, no supermarkets, no McDonald's, at least in the fast food business. Jim McEwen says there's a long list of things that Isla doesn't have and doesn't want.
4: We don't have any crime. We don't have mugging, carjacking housebreaking, rape, just dope drugs. We don't have that. You can keep that. You're very welcome to it. How do you explain the fact that there's no crime here? There's crime everywhere else. If you commit a crime in a small community, you will be ostracized and have to leave. Not only that, your family, your your children and your children's children will be remembered as the children of the man who committed the crime.
3: Most Scots are forthright, practical people who are proud of their country and the fact that their most famous export has withstood the test of time. They see themselves as artisans, and making whiskey is more about art and alchemy than manufacturing. Every distiller has their own secrets and superstitions. We'll give you the unclassified two-minute tour. Sorry, we can't offer you free samples. It begins with a bit of trickery on the molting floor when barley that's been soaked in water is spread out and raked over and over to convince the grain it's spring and time to germinate, releasing the starches that are locked inside. It's then dried with peat smoke to add flavor and ground into flour, sometimes with 19th century machinery, and then mixed with hot water, transforming the starches into a sugary concoction called mash. That, Bob. Oh, yeah. it's not You can smell the goodness. Yeast is then added, changing the sugar into alcohol, a primitive ale which is then cooked a couple of times in copper stills where the vapor is collected and condensed into this clear liquid. And that's the stuff we want to go into the barrel. But what I'm looking at is this looks like rubbing alcohol. This is, in fact, a was. It's whiskey.
4: very good. If you need a rub, there's no doubt about it. <laughs> I bet it would be good. But once it goes into the barrel, from then it's just time. It's just time. It's a great journey, you know. This is a child, but the cask is the mother. And that's what makes the journey. If you give a good cask, you're bound to get a good child. It's that simple.
3: It takes less than three weeks to make, but requires at least 10 years of aging in these oak casks, which add flavor and color to turn it into world-class single malt whiskey.
4: You'll see some of the names. There's Clement Springs... Buffalo
3: trees, Jim Beam. Bob was surprised to learn that 97% of the casks used to make single malt whiskey had been previously used to age American bourbon and bought secondhand from U.S. distillers. It's testimony to the ingenuity and frugality of the Scots, who have very few oak trees.
4: Without the American barrel, there would be no whiskey industry. It's as simple as that.
3: A sophisticated palate will detect a hint of the oak and bourbon in Isla's single malt, as well as the sweetness of sherry that comes from wine casks bought in Europe. Before the final product is sold, it will have done time in a number of different casks. Master distiller Jim McEwen is the one who decides when to rotate them and when each barrel is ready to be bottled. He opened a young cask for Bob to sample. I
4: would describe that as mellow yellow. Absolutely pure. And it's only seven years old. That's right. Young whiskies are like young people. They're vibrant, they're full of life. In fact, this for me is like coming home from work. Uh, at the end of the day, I work really hard. Uh, nobody appreciates me. My wife doesn't appreciate me. My kids don't appreciate me. Life's a bitch. <clears throat> couple so of glasses of that and it doesn't matter. Couple of shots of that and I am the king of the world. Absolutely. You know, I, frankly, I never liked this stuff, but the way you're talking me into it. But you got to check every bar.: I certainly hope so. so yeah.
3: Cheers. McEwen is the man responsible for the taste and consistency of the whiskeys at Brookblotty, which requires a very personal involvement with the product.
4: I have heard you described as the cask whisperer, I do talk to casks, uh, there's no doubt about it. In what uh, language? Uh, mainly English, and it depends on many whiskies I've had. If I've a few whiskies, I tend to revert to the Gaelic language I'm talking to the casks. It's just one of these things, you go into the warehouse and you pop the bung out, and you draw your sample, yeah, and you look at it and you think, wow, you're beautiful. But you're not just ready yet. Tell you what, I'm gonna come back and see you in three months, okay? And other times you find a cask which is so incredibly good, you can't not speak. oh my God, you are the most beautiful thing I have mm. ever tasted in my life. You know, and you think, oh geez, I just wanna share this with somebody. But there's nobody around, there's just me and the cask. We'll stay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> on most days, McEwen devotes several hours to quality control, checking up on several hundred casks.
4: But it's a fantastic job, um, nosing and tasting whiskies. And you can still walk out of here in the evening? Occasionally I need some help. There's no doubt about that, yeah.
3: Dying devotion to one's whiskey is apparently not all that unusual. While we were on ILEB, the camera crew ran into a party of Canadians, the friends and family of a deceased single malt lover named Bill, who wanted his ashes scattered in the waters opposite his favorite distillery. Funds for the pilgrimage were set aside in his will. That's why
4: he wants it. It's good, it's good. Jabil. Now he's happy.
1: Now
0: he's happy.
3: After that, the only thing left was for Bob to say goodbye to Jim McEwen, and it turned out to be last call for our old pal, Bob Simon.
4: Cheers, Bob. Hope you've enjoyed this little visit here. You're speaking in the past. It's not over. Yeah, I'm going to get you out of here, man. This is <laughs> you're costing me a fortune.
0: Not long after our story first aired, master distiller Jim McEwen retired, but not for long. McEwen is now part of the team opening Isla's ninth distillery called Ardnaho, the first to open on the island in more than 10 years. I'm Sharon Alfonsi. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new edition of 60 Minutes. Happy New Year.